All right, as I've said, we'll go ahead and start this morning um, with a uh, review of the book of Revelation. I wanted to make sure we catch what's been taking place prior to chapter 9. And by way of review, it's been my intention to review regularly as we go through this particular book because we need that reminder. We need to make sure we have things in the right perspective. We need to understand where we are during the events we're reading about because some of them were there where we're going to we're speaking about the church and other portions we're going to read about we won't be there only a christ rejecting world will be experiencing what's being recorded or presented so let's just jump right in to chapter one let's go through i'm just going to catch some key points overview reminder chapter one verse one we're told the revelation of jesus christ which god gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. As we studied chapter one, as we began this series, we were able to see that John was on the prison island of Patmos, held because of his faith in Christ. And Jesus meets him there, and then his experience on this island, will he'll have, he'll have an angelic presence, the Lord will speak to him, and then he'll be you know, moved up, if you would, as we move on through this particular letter. But I want to draw your attention to the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Revelation, that's what it means, is the revealing or the, the unveiling. And notice, as we've read there in verse 1, which God gave him to show his servants... Things which shortly take place. In other words, what we're reading, God gave for us to see, to show us, for us to know this. Things that it will shortly take place. Now, when we went through the chapter, you, you probably caught that shortly in this context means brevity. In other words, when it begins, it will be concise and brief. It will be quick to take place, the, the things listed. And so as we look at this, the key, I believe, to the book is that chapter 1 reveals that this entire book is ultimately about Jesus. Chapter one, we're told that he's the ruler over the kings of the earth, that he's the beginning and the end. He's the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So as we look at this, we're gonna be introduced to other characters and dark figures. But let's remember, the book of Revelation is about Jesus Christ and not the Antichrist. Yes, we'll see some details there, but always set that in your mind when you start into it. This, this is what I want to learn. This is what I'm going to know. This is about the rule, the reign, and the judgment of Jesus Christ and what he's going to bring. Now, we also see in chapter 1, verse 19, a key to the chronology of the book. In verse 19, we read, that write, John's being instructed by Jesus to write these things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And the reason this is a key is because it gives us uh, an insight into the transition that's going to take place. He's on the island of Patmos, and this experience is happening. But then he's gonna, Jesus is going to speak to John while on the island about the churches, the church age, chapters 2 and 3. Jesus speaks to the church from its gathering and the geographic locations, which we know that are listed there in chapters 2 and 3, the church that's in Ephesus, or uh, Smyrna, or Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, those seven churches, 
He gives instruction, and it wasn't just for them. We know historically it applied to, uh, to other churches, all churches, all gatherings, from the initial point after the resurrection to the point where we're at, or literally to the present age, until he snatches up his church and takes it into heaven in an event that's called the rapture. So chapters 2 and 3 give us an insight into the church, direction. He who has an ear, let him hear. Remember, we read that several times through that particular portion. And so we have things happening and being, we're being instructed. And then as you see in chapter 4, it begins interestingly with after these things. After what are the things? Well, not after the things that were, the things that he observed there in, in chapters 2 and 3 of the church, after the church age, then these things took place. And John is going to share um, what happens. He's, he's taken up into heaven. He's, he's taken forward in time and given a glimpse of things to come. That's what happened in chapter 4, which is fascinating because he, he is literally physically on this island. And then, according to the wording in the text, he is he's taken up. Come up here. I believe we'll be there when that takes place. He was, you know, here and got to go forward in time. And so he went to this, he was able to experience this, this trailer, this introduction to the things that are going to take place. And I believe, and you'll see why I believe we'll be there at that, when that moment actually happens, when it takes place in real time, if you would. But what's interesting in chapter 4 is John sees some of the activities of heaven. He sees worship. He sees praise. And he sees people serving God. See, there's an element that Jesus introduced to us that's contrary to our natural nature, our old nature. Jesus said, I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So he's saying, serving is what you learn to do. Serving is what you currently do. Serving is what you will do for eternity. And serving shouldn't be considered or seen as an imposition or a pain but rather a privilege. We get to partake in the purposes of the living God while we're here, and we'll be doing that orderly, ongoingly through eternity in a joyful manner. It's pretty exciting. So I just want to throw that out there. It's like, eh, sometimes what interferes with our service is the face in the mirror more than anything. Chapter 5, we see a glimpse of the church as they glorify God. We see in chapter 5, now the reason I mention that is because the church has been taken up. Somewhere between chapter 4, verse 1, and where we're looking at here in chapter 5, we know the, the, the church has been snatched away, taken away, in an event that's called the rapture, the, the catching away of the church. Now, I'm not going to get into it. We went into it in detail. I will give you a, a reference and uh, help you to realize, you know, Jesus chose words to convey relationship. He said things that in re, within that relationship how things would be, so to speak. Like we're told in 2 Thessalonians, maybe it's 1 Thessalonians, God did not appoint us to wrath. Okay, do you understand what that means? He, he's not going to pour his wrath out on his church. He also said, in terms that you and I can relate to, to convey the closeness and the intimacy that he is the groom and the church is the bride. So the point being, as we you know, look through this, the church, we're in heaven in this time that John's talking about in chapter 4, chapter 5, and, and on through. 
We see in chapter 5, verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open his seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. He goes on to tell us in verse 11 that there was thousands upon thousands times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. See, this is the church in heaven at this time because the church is really the only one who can sing this, that you have redeemed us to God. So here we're in heaven in this sequence. It is unfolding here in the book of Revelation. And I'm glad we're there because as we move on to to chapter 6, there's these judgments that take place. There in chapter 5, as John is describing the scene, it's revealed to him, introduced to him that there's this scroll. And this scroll is sealed and only one with authority, only one who can open this scroll. And he's kind of bummed out about it. But then we see that he's told that Jesus is the only one worthy, qualified to break the seal and open this scroll. Well, in chapter 6, the scroll is opened, and it reveals these various forms of judgment. Chapter 6 is the beginning of the great tribulation period, where God begins to punish those who reject Jesus and those who mock God with their lifestyle. As I've said, the believers in Christ, born-again Christians, have been removed and brought up into heaven, and now God directs his attention here in chapter 6 of what's taken place on earth as he begins to, to judge them. And as you, in chapter 6, these various seals are opened, clear up through the sixth seal. Remember, there's seven of these seals. So that they, these judgment seals are opened. We can see in uh, chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, a mindset that has not, uh, it's, it's not a new mindset. It's been there for a while. Chapter 6, verses 15 through 17. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand it? As I've said, God does not pour his wrath out on his bride. The starting of the tribulation period here in chapter 6, we can see this is the wrath of God being poured out. And it will not be poured out on his children. We'll be removed. We'll be with him in heaven. And leading us to chapter 7. In chapter 7, we were told about the 144,000 evangelist witnesses. They're, they're a specific group. They're Jewish. There's 12,000 from each one of the tribes listed. Over the years, many people have tried to distort or to, to manipulate or to twist or to turn and, and, and to try to explain who these really are. The key, a key to reading the book of Revelation is to pay attention. And when it tells you what it is, then just stick with what it is. You don't have to use a similitude or you don't have to turn it into symbolism. You don't have to try to make up a metaphor. You just simply look at it and go, this is who he says it is. So that's who it is. And interesting too, is that these evangelists and witnesses, um, you know, they're, they're going forth, these 144,000, and proclaiming the gospel. Many people will actually come to Christ during the tribulation period. You'll see this as we read along. We know already in chapter 6, that, uh, or chapter 7 here, that many who died at this point 
are, are martyred Christians who have died during the tribulation period are praising God. We see that according to verse 14. And so what I want to say about the 144,000 is, you know, according to some of the surveys and, you know, different things have been looked at, and I understand it, you know, right now there's less than 90,000 full-time, single-purpose evangelists on the world, in the world that are full-time doing it. Now, to make sure I clarify that, that makes sense. There's thousands of support people that are helping keep things going, but the, the verbalizing, the vocalizing that are uniquely going first, the estimate is under 90,000. I find that fascinating. I think it's probably higher. It's presented to be that high, but it might be lower. And 144,000 Jewish evangelist witnesses are going to go forth fully effective, fully empowered by God to do this work of proclaiming the gospel during the tribulation age. Let's look now into chapter 8. Chapter 8, we have that seventh seal that was introduced in chapter 6, the seven seals. The seventh seal is opened. And it unveils and reveals these seven trumpet judgments. The last seal judgment reveals the seven trumpet judgments. And and during these judgments, as we looked at just a couple weeks ago on Wednesday night, millions will die, billions actually. The earth is shaking, shaken. It's burning, there's volcanoes, there's earthquakes. The sun, the moon, the stars are darkened partly and probably because of all the airborne smoke and such. But it'll get much, much worse as we pick up in chapter 8, verse 13. And I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Which leads us to Revelation 9. Let's read verses 1 through 12, and then we'll come back and, and look at those piece by piece, verse by verse. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the earth smoke, out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth. And to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. Verse 6. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. Verse 10. They had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months. And they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. One woe was past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. All right. With the preview and the overview, we now jump into what is a very difficult, in a sense of, 
environment uh, to, to read about. Remember, you as a Christian, a born-again Christian, you're in heaven. You're not even able to look down on this. This is my opinion. Maybe I interject it. I don't believe that when we're in heaven, before the throne of God, that we're able to look down and see what's taking place on this earth in this, at this time. I don't, I don't, it doesn't fit with me to be able to look at that and have no sorrow. It would be such a horrible thing to view and have a, a recollection and a memory of that and you were there and knowing what's happening to see, you know what I think is going to happen? Have you ever been somewhere where you're so enamored by something beautiful and good before you that you're really not looking at what's behind you or around you? Because this is so captivated and captured your full attention that this is where you're at. And that's where we're going to be in the very presence of God, very throne of grace, the sea of glass, praising God and worshiping him. But let's go over what's going to take place. As we've seen there in verse 1, a fifth angel sounded and a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. We know this particular situation, this, this word star from the context of this verse tells us it wasn't just a, a star like we've read about in other parts where it's you know, coming to earth because it's given a pronoun. It's to, we're told it's a him. So we know this messenger, this star is going to be, you know, given the key to the bottomless pit, possibly Satan. Satan is a fallen angel. He's also known as Lucifer. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 15, we're given an insight to that. You know, Satan had, in a, in a sense, if you could see it, he, he led the, the worship in heaven. And he got to thinking he's pretty good. He actually, the Bible tells us that he exalted, thought he could be God. I can do this as good as you're doing it. I don't need you to tell me what to do. And he got kicked out of heaven. And a third of the angels fell with him. And so here we see possibly Satan, I believe it is. He's known as Lucifer. He's, he's allowed to use the key. I don't believe he's in ruling in any element in this regard. And we'll cover some of this on, on Wednesday night. But he's allowed to take this key. And as you see it in the text, to open up the, bottom, the bottomless pit, the abuso, the abyss. It's believed and scripture leads us to see that incarcerated demons, possibly fallen angels, are contained, held in this, this hole, so to speak, in this horrible hellish place. And they're held there. Now he is, Satan is given the key or this, person, this, this angel and he opened the bottomless pit. And of course the smoke rises out of the pit like a smoke of a furnace. So much that the sun and the moon, you know, the light is all darkened. And then coming out of this pit, in verse 3, there's the locusts that come up out of the earth, given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. So from this hellish pit is unlocked, and then this column of smoke arises up to earth, and the locusts come out. And I, I do believe that these are a specific being inhabited by demons, indwelling darkness in in literally hell's residents, if you would, that are released. Now, I know as we're going to work through this, you know, some have tried to attribute or, or assimilate what these could be instead of, but here it says they were locusts, and they describe what they can do. The reason I mention that is locusts represent judgment in the Bible. When locusts come upon the land, they don't ask what's for dinner, they just eat everything green, everything. It's always been a symbol of judgment, if you would. Now, as we look at this, 
You notice what they're told to do. They're commanded not to harm the grass, the green things, or any tree, because normally locusts eat plants. They ravish the land. Everything inside is decimated. Oftentimes, as you could, even now, I believe Africa is, has a, a, annually these plagues of, of locusts that just decimate. Have you ever seen, guys, you seen some, seen some of those videos? You can just check, go on, check it out and look, look at them. It's, it's phenomenal. They just darken the sky. They leave nothing. There's not even a nib of a vegetation sticking up. So here, these particular locusts are limited. They get to, to not ravish the land, as you see there from this text. But they only, those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So at this time, there's been, I believe, this distinction made. There's a distinction in that those who have taken what we know to be the seal of the beast, the mark of the beast, so they can buy and sell and you know, in worship of a one-world government system. But there's also those who come to Christ who rejected that, who will not receive the mark of the beast, but have put their faith in Christ and have not yet been martyred, because there will be a very aggressive movement to eradicate Christians, people that come to Christ during the tribulation period. And so those who have this seal, now we have this seal as Christians now in the person of the Holy Spirit, according to the letter to the Ephesians, that he is the down payment, the seal of our salvation, if you would. Then, you know, I'm not sure how it'll be. I'm not sure how that's going to take place, whether it'll be an identifiable mark. It's this we know for sure. It's a mark that God knows whether it's visible to the human eye or it's just a seal of his stamp of, of redemption upon them. There's another group, though, that will have a seal. It's the 144,000. And they won't be bothered. Neither will those who are Christians at this time that uh, have come to Christ during the tribulation period. Their torment will be like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. I haven't ever been stung by a scorpion. My research revealed I don't ever want to be. It's actually pretty brutal. It affects your, your nervous system and a few different things. And this, this is going to be an ongoing um, de- thing that people deal with for five months. What's fascinating to me, in those days, verse 6, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. You know, Hollywood has been obsessed with the form of this verse for quite some time. Zombie apocalypse, the undead the living de- night of the living dead, different, I don't know if that's actually accurate. So a zombie is generally seen as a, an uninhabited body, a dead body, then re-inhabited by a demon of some form or something evil. And then there's others, you know, the other part is like what they're talking about here, this passage is speaking of, is when you want to die and the body physically is medically, technically dead, but you don't depart it. See, here's the thing, you and I, we inhabit what the Bible says are tents. These bodies are a tent, a temporary dwelling place. And so we inhabit that, and when we die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we go to be with the Lord, the, the body stays back, doesn't go up with us. And so here we have this, this experience or this reality when the wrath of God is poured out in this particular season, in this section we're reading about, people will want to die and they can't. 
The body, spirit won't depart the body. The body, you know, whether someone attempts suicide, whether somebody, you know, does something to their body, as we've already read, you know, many wanted the hillside to fall on them and kill them. Then they, they wouldn't, the, the spirit wouldn't depart from the body. It's fascinating. Even the medical community scratches their head a little bit about life and death, correct? We can measure certain movements or certain signs in the physical frame but we can't really measure when the spirit departs from the body. We only can say that the must have left because they're getting no signals from the body. So it's a fascinating thing. It's kind of scary, really, if you look at this, go, man, people are going to choose to go through this? You know, people are going to endure this willingly? Now let's look at verses 7 through 10. And we have uh, an open invitation for a biblical imagination, if you would. Look at what we have. What I mean is, in verse 7, the shape of the locust was like. There's a very important four-letter word that you find frequently here in this portion. It's the word like, L-I-K-E. It gives you a little bit of liberty to think, okay, well, what was that like? Because John is setting some framework according to his familiarity, according to what he knows. It it was kind of like this, because he's using terms that were contemporary, so to speak. He hadn't seen an Apache helicopter. He didn't know what a Huey helicopter in Vietnam looked like. You know, all these things. And and that's what people tend to associate it with. Um, You know, it's all right to kind of consider and ponder. But I believe what we've already seen is there a specific creature in dwelling darkness in this hellish hole that are released. So my lean, my inclination is that they are actually creatures. Other people say, well, it's like this, and then it's got that, and then it's got this. Yeah, it, it does tells us that. They had tails like scorpions, verse 10. Their stings were in the tail. Their power was to hurt men for five months. In verse 11, and they had a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name is Abaddon or Apollyon. Both those words mean destroyer. And we know that Jesus said that there is a, an agent, a, a being, it is against God. And he comes to steal, kill, and what? Destroy. So we see that, that what, what's being, going on. I want to make sure that we understand as we go through this and we kind of sort things out, there is not an, an opposite force against God in the sense of yin and yang and good and bad. You know, good versus darkness type of thing and equality and hopefully good wins in the end. This is not the case. Okay, we have to really make sure we understand that. You know, the, Satan is not, he doesn't, he doesn't have a chance. You know what I'm saying? He's already been defeated. He's being locked up. He's, being, he's within the constraints and the, and the rule of God. He is never like almost there. He's always reacting to the good God has done with evil, but he's never equal in evil compared to God's goodness, his great goodness. Does that make sense? Why is that relevant? Because some people believe that, you know, it's just like that. You know, it's like a Star Wars kind of, you know, Lucas, whatever that guy's name was. He had this whole thought and theory that it's sometimes good wins, sometimes bad wins. No, no, never that way. You know, we see evil progressing, but it never overtakes the goodness of God and the love of God. So we have these creatures that are on the earth in verse 11. Uh, this destroyer is identified. One woe is passed. 
No, more are coming. It's going to get worse. Now, as we read through this, it's like, this is tough stuff for Sunday morning. Agreed? You can agree. It'd be okay. It's tough stuff for Sunday morning. Like, man, I don't know. that's tough. These are terrible times that are going to be upon people who want nothing to do with God. See, even today, there are millions of people that would rather have demonic influence. They'd rather have that than God's influence in their lives. They would rather have, because they, most people would never say, yeah, I'd like to be demonically influenced. They know not to say that. But they, they, they say things like, I don't want God right now. I don't, I don't need this whole Jesus thing. It's for weak and secure people who just don't have anything else to do on Sunday morning. And various forms of that type of mindset. See, when people give themselves, when they turn away from God, you've only got one other place to go. You either turn to God or turn away from God. Turning away from God, you're placing yourself under the influence of that which is not of God. So it's really kind of simple. Some take this prophecy that we're reading today, and they criticize God for judging humanity. They say things like this. How could a loving God do such a thing as this? Have you ever heard that? I've thought that as a young Christian. I was like, this doesn't fit. How God is love and all this kindness and all this, you know, feel goodness. And how can he, how can he, how can he do this? Well, I'm going to just touch on two things, two reasons. I believe there's multiple reasons that are equally understandable and even reasonable. But let's consider two, two reasons from Scripture. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we have a glimpse and an insight into why God would do some of the things he does. And this one's interesting. I find it very challenging in a good way. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, speaking to Christians and comforting those who were a little, you know, distraught over some of the things that had happened there in Thessalonica. And then, of course, carried on for you and I. Since it's a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing in verse 9. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. So God pours his wrath out on people who have rejected him and quite honestly have treated his children, Christians, horribly, horribly. Many Christians have been brutally beaten. They have been raped. They've been cut up. They've been beheaded. They've been treated terribly. They've been fired from jobs. They've been rejected. They've been terribly treated. And God's not going, eh, that's that world. We'll just go to heaven and I'll be happy. He's like, you know, you're going to give an account those who have done these things and the terrible atrocities that have been perpetrated on humanity, specifically upon Christians. And he says, I'm going to hold you in account. It kind of makes sense if we can agree in the relational dynamics that he's presented life. We're his children. He's our father. The enemy of our father 
abused his children, he's not looking the other way. Now, we shouldn't be that person who's like, oh, get him, God. You know, that's not our heart. We, we should have compassion and kindness. He went to the cross and died that they may be saved as well. So we, we have to have an awareness like, man, I'm not, I don't want people to experience what's being spoken of here. But some will choose it anyway. Some will experience this. This is, you know, what we can see in the very nature of God. Now, another thing to consider when we wonder how could a loving God pour out wrath on people? Love requires justice. To be just, fair, love requires that there's certain appropriate action. You can't just be, you know, random and non-committed and whatever. There's an element of love within this human experience, the free will that we have to receive love, express love, identify love. Love requires justice. Justice requires judgment, correct? You can't, you know, say you want to be just, but then not weigh out the facts because it requires just judgment. Love requires justice. Justice requires judgment. Judgment requires retribution. There's got to be consequences. There's got to be, when the judgment is made, there's got to be something dealt with, a commendation or a form of correction. So it's really, we understand it, honestly, even though our society is based off this principle and, and loosely follows it depending on the people that are in position, but ultimately we get it as humans. We, we understand it's going to take place. The sad reality to what we're, we, we've read concerning God's wrath is that people choose wrath over love. Remember, we did a review on this, up to this point in chapter, or in Revelation, and people are getting saved during the tribulation period. Why would that be? The church has been caught up, taken away. Those who have loved God and fit, they got in the timeline, they made the cut. They're his. When those who are left, tough luck, turkey. No, no. See, this is the amazing thing about God's love. Even when he's pouring out his judgment, He's given invitation. He's leaving the door open for someone to come in a true relation, into a true relationship with him. That's love beyond, beyond comprehension. That's love that we just go, wow, what an amazing thing this is. That he would still continue to, to bring about. And, and the witnesses, I mean, here's this wrath and this horrible time on earth. And he's sending his people. Later, he'll send two more witnesses who will be totally tore up and killed. And he, you see what I'm saying? And people will still choose wrath over love. They will not receive his love. Let's consider, you know, what we've seen there in Revelation 9, verse 6. Men will seek death and not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. They're seeking something, but it's not the Lord. I'd rather die than be with God. That's literally what we have happening here. They seek that. They desire some sense of end to this, but I will not take beginning with God. Glance over to verse 20 and 21. Chapter 9, Revelation, the same mindset. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. They would not repent. Sorceries, actually, you can see, speaks of drugs, actually. 
And we live in a time right now that it's the spirit of the age, the mindset. It's already in motion. It's not this time. But the way of living is nothing new under the sun. We see that from the Old Testament and God, how God dealt with people and how he brought his love, even though they would reject it. We see it in the New Testament era, if you would, how God offers his love, but people don't want that. I want to live for the moment. Here's the fascinating thing. When we choose to live for the moment before we're born again, there's one thing we know for sure. I am not immortal. We may act like it, but deep down, everyone knows I'm going to die someday. And some of us can be so filled with various earthly things, we, we don't care. As long as I get enough now, I'm happy. Well, when you read this, you go, man, no thank you. This is just a glimpse. These are the residents of hell, your roommates, if you go there, that have come out of the abyss and tormented people. And they're going to be put back in there. And you're going to join them in a form. Not, not the exactly same location, but we'll get to that later. So you can see what I'm saying? Here, here people will still choose hell. They'll still choose this. I don't want to give up my, my lifestyle. I don't want to give up this. I don't want to do that. Even in the tribulation, God extends his love and the gift of salvation. The good thing is, the great thing is, many, many will receive his love and will be saved. They're the tribulation saints we refer to. They're people that could be on the planet right now um, because the, the, the rapture is at any moment thing. The eminent return of Jesus Christ for his church can happen at any moment. It's a very important doctrine of imminent return that we understand that it was embraced by the very first generation of Christians that has been embraced doctrinally and because it's revealed biblically for every generation. He can return at any moment and take us up. And those who have not yet come to Christ, they'll still be here. And many will come to Christ, but more, million, billions more will die rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ and embracing things that will destroy them. And they know it. They know they will destroy them. It's crazy. I heard a guy say one time, you know what, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to play my cards. You know I mean? I don't, I'm not saying the Bible's right or wrong, but if it's true, I'll just go through the first little bit of the tribulation and, then, and give my life to Christ. Hello, stupid. Seriously. Did you read about it? Go get your generator, buy your 50 cal, purchase some ammo, move up in the hill, and you'll get, die, you'll get killed by an asteroid, if you're lucky. And something doesn't, oh, I'm going to bust out my 50 cal and shoot this hellish, you know, demon from the pit of the, of the of, you know, really? Do you think ammo is going to bother him? Seriously. And I literally, I, I don't know if it's just the testosterone zone I hang out in sometimes or what, but I'm thinking, are you out of your mind? You don't get to recreate evil and make it tolerable. It is horrible. It's beyond horrible. What are you waiting for? You need to get right with Jesus right now. Not just out of fear, but out of realization. Because if you get right with Jesus because of fear, I question your conversion. But if you get right with Jesus because you realize his love is extended to you in spite of how evil, how dark, how, how demented you can be, he offers you love and forgiveness and hope. It's like, man, that's why, that's true conversion. I, I, I don't want to get into a can of worms that I don't have time to cut up and fish with, but the bottom line is a conversion to fear is self-promotion. 
And the gospel speaks of self, of death, dying to self, born again, born of the spirit. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to close. This is, I shaved a little bit off and I'm, I did cut three minutes. So, we're, you know, it's better than I thought we were going to be. But I always have in the back of my mind, we do not have a third service. We can go and go and go. And then, then I realized we have children and, the, you know, we want them to have lunch and stuff like that. And join me in Second Peter as the worship team comes back up. Second Peter chapter 3. I'm so glad that God told us what he knew we needed to know. I'm so glad that he chose to show us these things that we've looked at today. But it's not meant to be conversation for your Sunday brunch. It's not meant to be something to just consider and and stimulate the imagination. It's meant for the Christian to experience transformation, ongoing transforming work. Let's consider what this passage says as we read in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Verse 11, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Oh, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Will you stand with me? We'll pray. God, we are so thankful for what you've unveiled, what you've revealed to us. Lord, as we read of these dark days that will take place on this planet, we can't help but remember and realize it's your love that brings light and hope. It's your love that's extended, a love that's expressed in payment that you paid the very debt that each one of us had, the debt of sin. Death was what the debt was. And you died for our sins. You paid that price. And you only, all, all, all we were to do, you said, was to believe, to put our faith in you, to turn to you. For belief has an action. Thank you for salvation, God. If you're hearing this message and you're not absolutely certain, confident, according to the promise of God, according to the work of God, if you're not confident, you have right relationship, you have salvation, please do not wait. Not because you're afraid of torment or locusts, because you realize the love of God is offered to you. The gift of salvation, he paid the price for your salvation. And so, to be born again, he's instructed us and simply conveyed to us is to believe on him, to believe that Jesus is God, to believe that he died for my sins, for your sins. And you would say, God, I believe that you are God, Jesus. I believe you died for my sins. I ask for your forgiveness, that I would experience this new life, this born again 
experience that you speak of. I don't, I don't even know how this works, but I'm deeply convicted that I've done wrong before you and only you can forgive me. And so I would ask Jesus, forgive me of those sins. Give me this new life. And with that, Lord, I would also say, I don't know what to do now. As that infant in the spirit, I don't know what to do tomorrow at work. I don't know what to do tonight. I ask by faith that you'd show me. I turn from those things I used to do. And I ask you to direct me in this new life. Show me this born again life where I put my faith and confidence in you, God. Believing that you began this life and you'll complete it. You're the author and finisher. Thank you, Jesus. And Jesus, we would ask as a group, collectively, speaking individually, may you be that pleasant father who comes into the room and shakes your children lightly to awaken them to the hour and the day. And some of us, Lord, you're going to have to shake a little harder, Lord. But Lord, we believe you will awaken us to how we should be living, what we should be doing, not out of fear, but out of beautiful privilege and opportunity to share your love, to be salt and light in this world. Praise you, God. We sing to you when we thank you. Do a mighty work for your glory and our joy. Amen. Let's sing to him.